So we are beginning a brand new series this morning. And it's been a journey for the last couple of weeks as I've been reading and studying and preparing for this. And I must tell you, as I've come to the church here this morning and stepped up to the plate, so to speak, there has been an extreme battle going on in my mind, heart, and soul. This is none other than spiritual warfare. I believe that whenever the Word of God is going to be preached, that uh, there is an enemy, a real, very real enemy that doesn't want it preached. And so... Let's keep that in mind as we open this book of James this morning. And I want to begin this morning uh, in a strange place, not in the book of James, but in an Old Testament, a little obscure story that takes place in 2 Kings 5. I'm not going to actually turn there, but I'm going to kind of give you the narrative. As I've read it by an author named Mark Green, who's been uh, very impactful in my life uh, in the last year or so. He writes, I don't know her name, but I do know that she was probably no more than 13 years old when the story that will be told for eternity happened. I know that she was living in a war zone, and I know that she was a believer in the one true God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and Jacob, the King of the universe, the shield of David, the shepherd of Israel, the Lord of hosts. And I've discovered that her story can help pretty much anyone see their situation differently. On an ordinary day like any other, an enemy raiding party comes down from the east and does what raiding parties do in 2 Kings chapter 5. The girl with no name is captured and ends up as a slave in a pagan household, in a pagan land, working for the enemy commander's pagan wife. She is isolated from other believers, wrenched from her family and friends, and has nothing but a life of slavery to look forward to. She's just a girl. And she is in the wrong job, and she's in the wrong place, with the wrong people, and the wrong, with the wrong present and wrong future. Where, oh where, she must have wondered, is God in all of this? How she must have yearned to be somewhere else. Now her mistress's husband, Naaman by name, the enemy commander, the pagan in charge of the army that had raided her town and taken her into captivity, has leprosy. What is her response to her enemy's illness? Is it to see it as a punishment from God for his idolatry? Is it to wish him a long and painful death? Serves him right. That's what happens to people who mess with God's children. No. Her response, recorded in 2 Kings 5, verse 3, is simply this. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria he would cure him of his leprosy. She's not looking to punish her enemy, but to bless him. She doesn't want Naaman dead. She wants him healed. 
She loves her enemy. Long before the greatest king of Israel startled his followers with the injunction to do just that, you have heard that it was said, Jesus said, love your enemies and hate your, uh, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Indeed, despite the fact that she had been taken into captivity, despite the fact that her circumstances might lead her to believe that the pagan gods are stronger than the God of Israel, she still believes that her God can do what the pagan gods cannot do. And she's right. Furthermore, despite the fact that her God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, she believes that her God can and will heal a Gentile. That his grace extends beyond the chosen nation, as indeed God had promised Abraham, through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed, Genesis twenty-two eighteen 18 says. And so she utters one sentence, the consequences of that sentence are absolutely extraordinary. Naaman is healed of his leprosy. To God be the glory. Naaman becomes a believer in the one true God. To God be the glory. Naaman's whole household, the whole army which he commands, the king of Aram, whom he serves in his, in his entire court, and the whole nation of Aram learned that the God of Israel can do what the pagan gods cannot do. And so importantly... Does the king of Israel and his entire court learn that lesson? To God be the glory. Now, how has all this come about? Through one simple, short, love-impelled, faith-soaked sentence uttered by a child. How much? I mean, it wasn't much, was it? What she said? Just one sentence. But in God's hands, how much is little? How big is a mustard seed anyway? How valuable is a widow's mite? How significant a cup of water? How has all this come about? After all, the girl wasn't powerful as the world measures powerful. She wasn't highly educated as the world measures education. She was a slave, a child without legal rights, an enemy in a foreign land, a girl in a patriarchal society. She was a nobody. We don't even know her name. Around 850 years later, the Apostle Paul wrote these words. He said, not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verses 26 to 29 and 31. How has all this come about? Was not this unnamed servant girl in the wrong job, as I said, wrong country, wrong people? I bet she yearned to be somewhere else, don't you think? Don't we sometimes do the same? But what if, for now at least, we are right where we are? 
What if for now at least the people we are with day in and day out on our front line, down our street, in our fitness class, in our workplace, are the ones God wants us to love and serve? What if the bit of God's earth that we're in is this bit that God wants us in and to help tend and to steward into, the, into, into just wonderful life? Who knows how God might work through any of us on our daily front line. Do we really need to have a high position or a university degree or lots of money or have a significant, to have a significant impact for God? You tell me, do we need all those things? Absolutely not. How does this all come about? And I'll give it to you in one word. Faith. The little servant girl's story is a brilliant example of faith on the front line. Out of her element, in a hostile culture, with no rights and no respect, the reality of her faith is validated by its practical outworking. It carries no air of superiority, no pious words, no pompous claims. It's humble, it's not shy. It's quiet, but it's not silent. It's active, but it's not pushy. It's simple, yet it's very strong. For all these reasons and so many more, this Old Testament story that I share with you has New Testament significance. Using a little servant girl's experience, God the Holy Spirit offers us the quintessential example of a faith that works. G.K. Chesterton was an English writer, essayist, poet, philosopher, dramatist, journalist, orator, lay theologian, you name it, he pretty much was it. Literary and art critic, biographer. He was often referred to as the Prince of Paradox because his popular and memorable sayings have influenced thousands, if not millions, including myself. Referring to himself as an orthodox Christian and known for his reasoned apologetics, G.K. Chesterton wrote extensively regarding the faith. And in his book, What's Wrong with the World, Chesterton wrote these famous and often quoted words. He said, the Christian ideal has, has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. That statement, which seems more like it could have been written 10 minutes ago than 107 years ago, coupled with the young servant girl's example in 2 Kings 5, is, in my opinion, the most well-suited introduction to the new series we are about to embark on that I could possibly have used. The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. The New Testament book of James, or better, the pastoral letter of James to a displaced, oppressed, and likely spiritually drifting group of Jewish Christians scattered throughout a rapidly changing world is a book which will challenge the reality of your faith and mine. It will test our faith's resolve, its integrity, its authenticity, its stability, and its practicality. I will ask, it will ask us all the hard questions 
and push us to the mat so that we may emerge knowing whether or not what we say we believe, we actually believe. I will warn you from the start that this is not a book for the faint of heart. So, because James will leave no stone unturned in regard to your faith and mine, not one. So if you want out, now is your chance. Today. Because this is faith on the front line. Where it will either be tried and found wanting or tested and found true. Make no mistake about it. So, are you ready for that kind of an adventure? Then let's begin the journey by getting a bird's eye view then of the book of James. Okay, look at James chapter 1, verse 1. That's all we're going to look at today. Well, it's not all we're going to look at, but it's the main text. Let's look at the pastoral context here, okay? James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. There's a lot packed into that. And you say, what are you talking about? It's just a greeting. Well, not really. First of all, let's look at who the author is, okay? I love the way this letter begins. Simple. No-nonsense identification. James, a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I can't help but think of the resemblance of this greeting to Ian Fleming's characteristic identification of his most famous character in the James Bond movies. Who wrote this letter? The name's Bondservant. James Bondservant. I thought that was clever. <laughs> the actual Greek name is Iakobos, which is a form of the Hebrew name Jacob. The name occurs some 42 times in the New Testament. Depending upon how you identify them, there are anywhere from four to six different men in the New Testament referred to James, four of them being the most prominent. Actually, there are three of them that are mentioned in one verse in Acts chapter 1, verse 13. There is James, the father of Judas, not Judas Iscariot. He's mentioned twice in the New Testament, but otherwise he's completely unknown. So he's probably not the author. There's James, the son of Alphaeus, also known as James the Less or James the Younger, listed as one of the twelve, but also fairly obscure. We don't know anything really about him. Probably not the author. Then there's James, whom you all know, probably, if you've read the Bible at all, the son of Zebedee, the brother of John, one of the sons of thunder, right? Prominent as one of the inner three with Jesus, Peter, James, and John. But his early martyrdom by Herod Agrippa in A.D. 44, according to Acts chapter 12, verse 2, makes him... A very unlikely candidate to be the author. And then there's James, the Lord's brother, or better, the Lord's half-brother. Also known as James the Just. He's listed a number of times in the scriptures. He was also the leader of the Jerusalem 
church. Actually, let's look at that. Acts chapter 12, verse 17. I'm going to go quickly here. So follow along. Acts chapter 12, verse 17 says... um, This is after Peter's delivered from jail and he goes and knocks on the door and they didn't even realize that uh, it was him at first. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of the prison and he said, report these things to James and the brethren. And then he left and went to another place. Now, how do we know that this is James, the Lord's brother, and not James the son of Zebedee. Well, if you back up to chapter 12, the very beginning of the chapter, in verses 1 and 2, you see that Herod the king had laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them, and he had James, the brother of John, put to death. So James Zebedee was already dead. Okay? This other James, the Lord's brother, is much more prominent here now in the church. And so chapter 15 in Acts, you can skip ahead to that. This is at the council at Jerusalem now. They're reporting to the elders and the Jerusalem church what's going on with the Gentile world. And they have to make a decision on some things. And James, the Lord's brother here, is uh, in play. After they, verse 13, after they had stopped speaking, James answered saying, brethren, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. And it goes on and on and on. If you go down to verse 21, it talks about all these decisions that they had to make and then what they had issued in the form of a letter to the Gentile Christian churches. Chapter 21, verse 18. Paul's at Jerusalem. Verse 17 says, After we arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly, and the following day Paul went in with us to James and all the elders who were present. And then... Galatians chapter 2, 19. I'm sorry, 2 verse 9. Verses 9 and 12. Paul writes, And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I also was eager to do. Okay? And then in verse 12, he's mentioned again. So James, the Lord's brother. Now, you may be asking a very important question. Jesus had brothers? Yes, and sisters. He actually had four half-brothers and at least two half-sisters, according to the Scriptures. And then the next question would be, well, I thought Mary was a virgin. Well, that is absolutely true. And when Jesus was born, she was. But Matthew chapter 1, verse 25 indicates that Joseph kept her a virgin only until she gave birth to a son, her firstborn son. 
being Jesus. According to the most plain reading of the scripture, Mary and Joseph had children after Jesus. And these siblings didn't necessarily fully accept who Jesus was. At least not at first. Turn to Matthew chapter 13, if you would. Matthew chapter 13, verse 53. For those of you that are skeptical about this, I just want to point out some scriptures. Because I know I grew up in a tradition that said, no, 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 no. Jesus didn't have any brothers and sisters. But you have to do some mental gymnastics to the scriptures in order to explain these away. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 53, when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there and came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue so that they were astonished. And he said, where did this man get his wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters? Are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. That word took offense, that phrase means they didn't believe in him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many miracles there because of their, say it, what's it say? Unbelief. Mark chapter 6, verse 3 is another passage of scripture that says basically the same thing. Mark 6, 3, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon are not his sisters here with us, and they took offense at him. It's the same basic passage, parallel passage here. And then we have Galatians in chapter 1, in verse 19, which very clearly says, when Paul went up to Jerusalem, um, Verse 18, he says that three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days, but I did not see any other of the apostles except who? James who? The Lord's brother. The Lord's brother. Very clear. Mark chapter 3, verses 20 and 21 indicate that his family were so concerned about him, Jesus and his disciples, they were, they were preaching, they were working hard, they weren't, they weren't even eating. They came to him in those verses and they tried to take him away and to talk some sense into him. Why? Because they thought they were, he was going crazy. And John chapter 7, this is very instructive. John chapter 7. Verses 1 to 5. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of the booths was, of, of booths was near. Therefore his brothers said to him, here it is, leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Verse 5, underline that. For not even his brothers were believing in him. That's an interesting piece of information, isn't it? 
James, the author of this letter, wasn't a believer in his own brother, Jesus, until something changed his mind. What was it? Well, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I think we have a possible answer here. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Another few weeks we're going to be celebrating what this passage of Scripture talks about. Paul begins in verse 1 by talking about what the gospel is, and then he says what the gospel is, that we deliver to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And don't forget this very important piece of the gospel, which most of us don't ever include when we're witnessing to people, is that he appeared to people. And that he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to who? James. Why in the world was James singled out here? Well, I can't answer that question. But I think it has something to do with his transformation. No one ever was the same when they witnessed the resurrected Christ. By the book of Acts, we find that this same James is the leader of the Jerusalem church, prominent, full of faith, and a pillar of the church to whom Peter and Paul actually answered to. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. From skeptic to servant. From immense doubt to intense faith. No wonder James has some strong words to say in his letter about the concepts of doubt, double-mindedness, and true saving faith. All of that gives us quite a bit of insight into the character, if not only the author, but also this letter and how it was written. The intensely Jewish flavor of the writing, the lack of the usual Christian terminology as you find in other books of the Bible, all of Paul's writings, for instance, was, was also there's an absence of very formally developed theology in this letter, so prevalent in later books of the New Testament. All of this has historically caused people to minimize the importance of, of inclusion of James into the canon of Scripture. Actually, some balked at including it in the canon. It is considered likely to be the earliest New Testament letter to be written, but it was one of the last ones to be accepted and may well be the most practical letter written in the New Testament. And the practice of faith is one of the most prominent features in this letter. James doesn't define faith per se. There's no short, pithy, Memorable statement by which we can fill in the blanks. Faith is. James doesn't give you that. Instead, what James gives us is five full chapters, graphically, sometimes hard-line descriptive pictures of what faith looks like in the everyday life of a believer in Christ. Someone has rightly said that James doesn't tell us how to be saved. He tells us what it looks like once we are. James says this is what faith on the front line looks like. Faith has joy in the midst of trials. Faith endures trials. Faith understands the power of temptations and the bitter fallout of giving in to them. 
Faith obeys the truth. It doesn't just read it, study it, and then forget it. Faith is not partial. It doesn't play favorites with the rich, the powerful, and the beautiful. Faith is merciful. It's not judgmental. Faith works. It doesn't just sit there. Faith controls the tongue. Faith acts wisely, prays fervently, resists being conformed to the world, walks humbly, values unity, waits patiently, speaks truthfully, looks to the Lord continually, and cares for sinners deeply. This is all contained in the book of James. And all of the things that faith does, James says, faith serves. James, a bondservant of God and of Jesus Christ. But it doesn't just serve for the sake of serving, because anybody can do that, right? It serves Christ. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it serves others as a result of serving Christ. And here at this juncture is a very critical concept to grasp as we begin this series. To quote one of my all-time favorite writers, Mark Buchanan, he says, Our true aim should not be the holy habit of service, but the Christ-like attitude of servanthood. Anyone can do acts of service. We can give blankets to homeless people, food to the hungry, water to the thirsty, and all of that might deepen rather than break our delusional Messiah complex. You understand what he's saying? It might be done only to exalt ourself, to become something, to be a star. But it's another thing to make yourself nothing, to become humble, to be a servant. That's the only Messiah complex the Bible invites us into, by the way. Actually, the Apostle Paul outlines the only Messiah complex that Jesus' followers should have in Philippians chapter 2. And you know the passage well, but it bears repeating. Verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, which James deals with in two different occasions in his letter. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And have this attitude, see, the attitude, which is in, in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for this reason, God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow. You see, James himself embodies that very virtue in his own introduction. He has the pastoral mindset of servanthood before leadership, testimony before title. James, a bondservant, and he uses the word for slave. The word bondservant is the word slave. And a slave in that time period didn't have any rights. Didn't own any property. Had no life of his own. A slave was not his own. 
A slave in the first century didn't make statements like, it's my body, my choice. No slaves were bought with a price in those days. And James had been bought lock, stock, and barrel by the blood of not his own brother, but by his Lord and Messiah, who just happened to be his own brother. Some would say that he is even equating Jesus with God in this statement at the beginning of James. The bondservant of God, even the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord and Messiah. See, James, as Douglas Moo comments, addition to the title Lord, reflects a very early Christian understanding of Jesus as seen in Peter's claim in his Day of Pentecost sermon. Jesus, when Peter said, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. James's view of his half-brother Jesus had undergone quite a transformation since the days that he grew up in the same household with him. See, James blows my mind and convicts my soul to the core, even in his opening statement. And he should yours. You know what he doesn't do? He doesn't preface his letter the way any of us would do it. He didn't pull any rank or assert his authority. This is what he doesn't say. James, the Lord's brother. Although he could have. He doesn't begin with James the apostle, as Paul referred to him in Galatians chapter 1. He doesn't say, James, the best-selling author and senior leader of the first church at Jerusalem, the fastest-growing megachurch in the known Christian world. He didn't say that. He didn't write that. I doubt that he even thought that. See, there's not one hint of selfish ambition in this greeting, which he addresses forcefully in this letter, this idea of selfish ambition. How foolish and arrogant we must sound to Jesus with some of our ridiculous, self-exalting titles. Really. How many times have you and I felt that we had to preface our statements to others with self-exalting credentials or accomplishments that we have made in order to enforce our authority in the situation or in a group or ministry gathering? I mean, really? Do we need to do that in the presence of God? Is it really necessary? In other words, if you have to tell everyone how much authority you have, you don't have any. If you think you have to verbally broadcast the depth of your faith to people, you've betrayed yourself, James indicates, already. Because if people can't see it with their eyes in the way that you live, no amount of your words will convince them otherwise. In his own words, breathed out by the Holy Spirit, James later reminds us, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. You see, it is both convicting and comforting when you really begin to understand James's demeanor, who he really was and what he's really saying to us. Make no mistake, my friends, we will be challenged by this book. 
If this letter takes root in your life and in mine, there will be a visible, tangible impact on us personally and on Fayette Baptist Church as a whole. It will be unavoidable. You'll see it. You'll feel it. Our speech will change. Our relationships will change. Our love for one another will change. We will worship differently. We will pray more intensely, serve each other more readily, repent more rapidly, reach out more radically, and dare I say it, we will grow more spiritually. This is faith on the front line. So that's the author. I told you there's a lot in this first verse. And we've only just started with the first part of it. Now we're going to the second part of it. The audience. James designates his target readers here. He says, to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. Most scholars agree that the audience to which he was writing were Christian Jews scattered throughout Palestine and Syria as a result of persecution. Just quickly turn to Acts chapter 11 and verse 19. As Peter reports what's going on at Jerusalem, that the Gentiles are being saved. Verse 19 says, the Holy Spirit, Luke, through Luke writes, so then those who were, be, who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. Just that refers back to chapter 8, verse 1. After Stephen was martyred, Verse 1 of chapter 8 says, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So the church was scattered. And if this really is the first New Testament letter written, and James was the first, the leader of the Jerusalem church, it makes perfect sense that he would greet the people this way. Recipients of James' pastoral letter were displaced Christians who had left their homes and were fleeing persecution. Secondarily, however, this letter has a direct and applicable impact on all Christian people dispersed throughout today's world, displaced from their true spiritual home in heaven. Amen? It, it is therefore one of the most relevant books of the Bible for every Christ follower today. Finally, there is a clear application in a general sense to whole churches giving much-needed admonitions to the body of Christ as we live in community with each other. For example, chapter 2, verse 1, James says, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Chapter 4, verse 1, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is, it not, is not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members? He's talking seemingly to a group of people here. Verse 11, do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. Chapter 5, verse 9, 
Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. Verse 13, is any among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He's to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him. See, it seems like there are certain aspects of this letter that are directed toward churches, generally speaking. And then there's the genre. What is this? Very simply, it's a letter. Greetings, James says. Greetings. That's the customary salutary beginning greetings to a letter. It's clear by the standard greeting here that James is not writing a short story. He's not writing a book, although we refer to it as a book just because it's named a book of the Bible. It's really a letter. And he's not writing a theological treatise. He's writing a letter, plain and simple. But it's more general and pastoral than it is theological. It is far different than, say, the formality of Romans in which Paul takes actually six verses to explain who he is before he even gets into greeting his readers. Totally different than that. It's indeed much briefer. And along with First and Second Peter, First, Second, Third John, and Jude, considered a general or Catholic epistle. You'll hear that. One of the universal or Catholic epistles. Although it contains little formal theology, James certainly does not avoid making theological assertions. He talks about the future crown of life in chapter 1. He talks about the fact that the source of good, anything we get that's good is always from God in chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. He talks about the law in chapter 2, that God is one in chapter 2, verse 19. He talks about the fact that we are made in God's image in chapter 3, verse 9, and that Christ is imminently about to return in chapter 5. So there is theology there. But don't be fooled by its brevity or terseness. James is writing to people who need to know the hard truth. They're on the, you know what? They're on the move and they're under the gun. And there is clear, this clear and ever-present danger for them that the biggest problem facing them as displaced Christians is not necessarily their being forced out into the world, but rather that the world is forcing itself into them. That's the issue that James is dealing with. They were tempted to succumb to impatience, materialism, bitterness, disunity, spiritual apathy, and that's precisely us. Isn't that who we are in this world? That's what James is concerned about. As the most practical book in the New Testament, James nails us to the wall with the truth about our Christianity. And it is as relevant today as it was in the first century. All right. Let's move to the next point. The purposeful content of James. There's no question that James depends upon Jesus' teaching more than any other New Testament author. There are no direct quotes in this book from Jesus, but he sews Jesus' teaching directly into the fabric of his presentation of truth everywhere, especially those teachings recorded by Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount. 
I love the words used by one scholar who said that James, quote, seems to have been so soaked in the atmosphere and specifics of Jesus' teaching that he can reflect them almost unconsciously, unquote. And my response to that is, oh, that I would be so thoroughly soaked and that you would be. There is this enormous amount of content in James for such a short book. And this, in part, is what makes James one of the most favored and oft-quoted books in the New Testament. It's also what makes it nearly impossible to cleanly outline. There's, in fact, no one overarching theme, although I've put faith on the front line on it. It could be any, a lot of different things. Because, listen, I've read dozens of books and commentaries, and I've listened to multiple sermons on this book, and the one thing that I find consistent is the fact that no two outlines are consistent. <laughs> Not in this book. And there are, however, some very obvious elements that can be agreed upon across the board about this book. Let me just give you five, a handful, okay? Real quick. Number one, it's practical. We've said that already. Yet it bears repeating for this book is filled with guidance for life and the practice of our faith in the world. This is faith on the front line. Number two, it's proverbial. James has rightfully been called the Proverbs of the New Testament for good reason. Because it's written in the style of Old Testament wisdom literature and it deals with exhibiting wisdom, uncompromising ethics, and the practical everyday elements of life in the real world. Like Proverbs, it's written in the form of maxims and little sayings which are both memorable and repeatable. Just this week, I was reading in Proverbs 27 in my devotional time, and the opening line pulled me right into James chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. This is Proverbs 27, 1. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. Not only does that point to James, but you hear Jesus' Sermon on the Mount on that? James chapter 4, verses 13 and 14 says this. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. You do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. See that? The parallels? You know what? This is the way, maybe you can think of it like this. I try to think of it like this. might be a little irreverent, but it's actually a good picture. In today's social media terms, I would more likely characterize James' writing as a running Twitter feed. Really. James is quick, rapidly changing thoughts, often formed with very sharp angles, resembles more of a spiritually charged and God-breathed Twitter rant in a series of blog posts than an actual letter. You'll see when you read through it. So, it's practical, it's proverbial. Number three, it's pointed. James' words have an authoritative prophetic air about them. James has also been called the Amos of the New Testament and not without cause. As D. Edmund Hebert put it, his denunciations of social injustices have about them the vehemence of an Old Testament prophet. Alistair Begg put it this way, James is more imperative than it is indicative. Now what do I mean by that? In other words, it doesn't just indicate what is and what we need to know. It exhorts us to do what needs to be done. Okay? 
Do you know that James contains more direct commands in it than any other New Testament book? In 108 verses, there are more than, well, there are around 60 commands. In chapter 4, verses 7 to 10, four verses, there are 10 commands, right in those four verses. This is the kind of stuff that James says. We're going to see it. Here's James, okay? Open your eyes. Close your mouth. Curb your anger. Don't play favorites. Work your faith. Don't teach if you can't control your tongue. Submit to God. Resist the devil. Purify your heart. Get low. Humble yourself. Submit to God. I said submit to God. Stop talking against your siblings whether behind their back or to their face. To the rich, mourn for your greed and your injustice. To the poor, wait patiently for the Lord. Stop complaining. Do what you said you would do. And pray, pray, pray. This is the kind of stuff that James gives us. No question that James is pointed. You guys are already scared. I'll be, I'll be surprised if any of you come back next week. Right? The next one is that James is poetic. It's poetic. He writes as a Hebrew, evoking deep emotions in us. There are vivid, colorful metaphors and illustrations all throughout this letter, making his concepts memorable and accessible, easy to understand. Example, chapter 1, verse 6, he talks about the surf of the sea and being tossed by the wind. You get a picture of that? Just by, by me saying that, I bet you can smell the salt in the air. Chapter 1, he talks about the fading flowering grass. Chapter 3, he talks about the tongue gone rogue in terms like bits and bridles, rudders, flaming fire, untamed beasts, Deadly poison, fountains spewing forth fresh and bitter waters. You get the picture? Chapter 5 talks about wretched riches, descriptive words that he uses, things like rotted, moth-eaten, rusted, flesh-eating, fattened hearts, day of slaughter, etc., etc., etc. You see where this brings this, you know what it is? It's the last thing. It's personal. Because it's poetic and picturesque, it makes it personal. All of this makes us feel something, doesn't it? It creates this environment in which the truth of the word, coupled with the work of the Holy Spirit, can move us to change. You know what that's called? Spiritual conviction. And the question of the hour is, will you be willing to act on that conviction when it comes? Will I? Will you believe? And faith, my friends, is what I believe is the central concern here. And when I say faith, what I'm really referring to is not some intellectual assent, not some verbal profession. When I say faith, and when James says faith, He's talking about spiritual wholeness. Wholeness. Shalom. The way things ought to be. 
means that we will become totally and completely Christ's. Again, Douglas Moo points out, basic to all that James says in his letter is his concern that his readers stop compromising with the worldly values and behavior around them and give themselves wholly to the Lord. Because when it's all said and done, spiritual wholeness, that's what it's all about. Faith in Christ working itself out on the front line of the world. Because folks, that's where it needs to be. Listen, if I preach this series as skillfully as I should, and I have every intention of doing so, if the Holy Spirit does his work as powerfully as he can, and I have every confidence that he will, if these truths take root in your life and in mine, six months from now, we're going to be different people. This will be a different church. And quite possibly, that's exactly what Jesus thinks we need. So, as I close, my desire for us today and in the weeks to come is that God would make us spiritually whole, that he would work in us and through us as we, like the young Israelite servant girl in 2 Kings 5, who was totally displaced and immersed in a godless culture, far from her homeland, wherever it may be, we would exhibit our faith on our own front line so that the people around us who know nothing of Jesus might through us be blessed, healed, strengthened, saved, and transformed and released from their bondage and brought into the Father's service. And that they might declare, like Naaman of old, now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. There's such forceful words of truth contained in this letter, this short letter that you've put before us. Father, I, I kind of shudder to think, Lord, this, of this high calling to unpack this, this book, this letter the way that I should. Because right directly in the book, you say that let not many of you become teachers for such will incur a stricter judgment. And so I humble myself before you, Lord God, as we embark on this journey, that we would do it humbly and together as one church in Christ, that we would apply the things that need to be applied. And Lord, that we would become spiritually whole, wholly trusting in you, for the sake of your name, Jesus, our Lord and our Christ, I pray.